You are listening to Matchpoint Canada, the official podcast of Tennis Canada. I'm Ben Lewis. He's Mike McIntyre. And now we're happy to be joined by not only one of the greatest Canadian athletes we have, but also a terrific ambassador for tennis on and off the court. He's a Wimbledon finalist, former world number three, owns eight career ATP titles. Milos Raonic, thanks so much for joining us on the podcast again. Thank you for having me. Milos, it's great to have you back. And uh, the last time we did speak to you in the summertime, you were uh, somewhat dreading your approaching birthday at the end of 2020. Um, You turned 30 exactly a month ago from today, actually. And uh, I'm just wondering, now that you've reached that magic number, how does it feel and how did you celebrate that uh, momentous occasion? Um, Thankfully, it doesn't feel too much different. And the celebration was very uh, corona COVID-19 approved, uh, just had a, a dinner with closest friends that I was with during the off season and, and my girlfriend and kept it small. And, you know, it was a tough off season because you sort of had to calculate what was the safest, but also the most productive way to prepare. And uh, so my uh, birthday was the exact same. The 40th will be the big blowout that you wanted, I guess, right? Yeah, hopefully by then we're back to normal. I should hope so. Uh, we, we noticed yesterday uh, that you made a very rare appearance on Twitter. Um, I kind of looked back and it had been over two years since the last Milos Raonic tweet. Uh, what brought you back into that uh, social media sphere? And should your fans expect to see you on there a little bit more in 2021? You know, I've been trying to get back on for about a year and a half. Um, forgot your process, password? Forgot my password. <laughs> forgot my phone number that was associated with my two-step verification and there's actually no phone number for twitter um everything has to be done by email so every single time at first you're normally doing the whole support system with uh, an automated response and then you get frustrated and this time because right now in australia we have a lot more time to ourselves with the many hours we spend in the room i actually kept following up and dealing with the pain at the beginning of the automated responses and finally got through it and um, I've always enjoyed it. I just got away from it for a bit and uh, I'm happy to be back. You may have to update the profile picture. The hair doesn't quite match what we're seeing in, in reality right now. Well, maybe it's better, you know, maybe it's better that way. You know, it goes uh, as when the bad hair days are, you try to put a good, good hair day forward. <laughs> well, we were certainly uh, thankful to see you back on, on Twitter. And, uh, you know, you mentioned that off the top, obviously, a, a different type of offseason, I think, for every tennis player. But uh, you are at least one of the players who was not part of this 72-player uh, quarantine ahead of the Australian Open. Uh, how thankful are you at least to have that freedom as you, you know, prepare for the start of the season? And uh, have you heard any feedback from some other players, your colleagues who, who are stuck in their hotel rooms? Yeah, you know, it's, uh, it's terrible fortunes. Um, some of the messages regarding it were, could have been maybe portrayed a little bit better to us, but there, we were to some extent notified that that could be possible. And I think if you did maybe some of your own research on it it seemed more than likely considering the protocols here and it's tough um the thing about this grand slam compared to others uh, especially under this uh, current climate around the world and especially the very safe protocols that they're doing here in australia is that uh, 
this is affecting the preparation. Most other Grand Slams, when we've gone to into their COVID protocols, um, mind you, those countries haven't been as successful at minimizing the numbers in community spread here. They're at zero. So I completely understand why they are so conservative about it because they've had incredible success with it. Um, most places you show up a couple of days before the event, a week maximum, and you can sort of go straight into it with no limitations. And really the only thing you're uh, monitored by is constant testing and the, the inability to only shuttle yourself from your accommodation, the hotel, uh, straight to the venue. No stops in between of any sort. And this one, it was, uh, we were notified that we have to come in about two weeks in advance, obviously three before Grand Slam to have a chance to play a preparatory event. And to spend two of those three weeks, especially after you've, like most players, have done a lot of training. Um, that's tough, you know. Most players never take two weeks off in the full year away from a tennis court. So to have that sort of put upon you and to be, uh, subject to that two weeks before a slam is tough and it's going to be very interesting and obviously there's going to be some unsafe factor to it as well um, asking players to with the heat and everything compete uh, I believe eight to nine days out of out of quarantine of uh, not leaving uh, a relatively small hotel room and not being able to exercise and prepare the best way possible so um, it's very unfortunate. I know that it's players from what I've seen on social have gotten quite creative. Uh, mattresses are having the dust knocked out of them. Maybe the hotel's happy about that. I hope those players that are hitting hard against those mattresses uh, have windows to open. Uh, you don't want to be sitting around with all that dust. But, uh, uh, you know, I commend the players on uh, dealing with it in a very professional way, trying to make the most of it. And I wish them all the best in the coming weeks. And uh, I, I mean, all, all that being said, actually, well, I look back to the last time we spoke with you and I think that was uh, kind of early in July before you made your return and you really came flying out of the gates, making the finals of the Western and Southern Open in, in New York. In, in terms of preparation now, of course, you, you're not subjected fortunately, to that type of quarantine. But how do you feel about your recent preparations uh, ahead of this 2021 season with a, a Grand Slam and a couple of big events right around the corner? Yeah, I feel excited about it. I feel like I was able to, this offseason also, just like the first go-through with the hiatus we had in 2020, I was able to organize uh, and also have to be a bit flexible. The toughest thing was uh, originally we were planning to be heading this way December 15th. A couple of days after the offseason had started, we get delayed uh, to the beginning of January. Then we get delayed again to January 15th. Um, and obviously everything was so much up in the air because as with everything in the world, everything is so reactionary to what's going on, especially with cases in the communities where we do get to compete and with the government uh, protocols are. I think that was probably the toughest part, the constant adjustment. But once uh, we were able to set our plan forth, uh, everything went really well. And I thought it was really positive because we had a very good reference uh, of A, what worked for us in the first uh, longer block of time away from tennis and B, also being able to look back at many matches and many events played like uh, 
hey, this worked. I was able to play well right away from the beginning. This is where my game is at. This is what I feel we need to focus on and add more. And it gave us very clear objectives and a very clear path forward of the approach we wanted to take. We're on the, uh, the cusp of the uh, ATP Cup as we speak with you here. And uh, this will be the first time you've played this event, although you've played Davis Cup for Canada many times. Uh, you and Dennis give Canada in particular such a strong one-two punch in the singles. Can you talk about the appeal of an event like this for you? And do you hope to be playing in the doubles action as well? Yeah, I think uh, the plan is uh, for now for me and Dennis to, to be doubling up, uh, you know, two matches a day. Um, we have, uh, if that's not possible, we have a very solid team all the way through alongside us. But uh, last year I didn't make the cut or I did make the cut, but it didn't seem like the best preparation for a Grand Slam because I wasn't guaranteed really any matches to play uh, before uh, getting to Melbourne. Obviously being the beginning of the year, that's a very important uh, factor in how you schedule things. This year I did make the cut and uh, being the second player and I think it's very positive and something to get excited about. I saw the atmosphere was incredible last year. Um, players got very into it with the format that they play and sort of how they place out the whole team on court in, uh, versus Davis Cup where it's just the coach and the player and then everybody a little bit further behind. That seemed excited and you know the, the support for it was incredible. Obviously, it's going to be limited this year but it's going to be a lot more than what we've seen in tennis for a while. So I think that's also very exciting and very encouraging. And, you know, I'm very happy to have a teammate like Dennis alongside that uh, for us, uh, it's going to uh, be a very important factor, you know, depth is going to be important. And also if, if need be how we step up and uh, play uh, when it comes to the doubles. And I think, uh, Dennis has played a lot of doubles over the last couple of years. Um, I've played a little bit more over the last year. So I think uh, if we can make the most of it and, you know, focus really hard and it's really important because it's only three teams in a group and only one team is, you know, making their way through. Um, each match is important, but, you know, if each team's able to go to one, the number of sets is important. So that focus all the way through is, is going to be very key. Yeah, you, you mentioned that that group, just three teams, and uh, you guys have a, a major challenge ahead because, of course, the defending champions, Serbia, are in that group, and, and as well, Germany, and, of course, Serbia sporting uh, the world number one, Novak Djokovic. Um, any specific expectations already? You, you have a match lined up. You know you have Dusan Lajevic around the corner. I guess what are you expecting in terms of a, a challenge right off the bat? Yeah, it's, it's going to be tough. The courts here are quick. So I think uh, with uh, Dushan, uh, I played him last year on clay in Rome. That was a tough match for me. And uh, I played him once before on hard courts as well, on quicker hard courts, I think Cincinnati, um, probably 2018 maybe. Um, it's uh, The courts, I think, will help me. Uh, they've been quick, obviously. Serving big is going to be important. Being the one to be aggressive first is going to be important. And obviously finding myself near the baseline and finding him pushed further back is uh, sort of the spectrum of play that I want to see happen. And then uh, obviously with the quicker courts against uh, Struff in the second one, it's, it's going to be tough as well. You know, he's got a big serve. I think that one, 
it's going to be important about who can dictate more. You know, we both want to be in the center of the court controlling and making the other guy move. So whoever can take advantage of that uh, setup is, is going to be the one that gives himself the best chance. So I think it's going to be very important, especially being the first matches of the year, obviously another time, a longer time without playing that focus, that mental discipline right away from the beginning. The matches are early 10 a.m. We don't play those very often if I don't think I've ever played a 10 a.m. match. But I'm actually one that likes uh, the early matches. Uh, I like being first up rather than having to, you know, wait around uh, for many hours, not knowing when you're going to be called on court. So I'm eager about it. I'm excited. And I think uh, our team's excited. And uh, Dennis has two tough challenges ahead of him. But uh, I've seen him around a little bit. Obviously, we're very limited about how we can and much we can see other people that are not part of our practice partners, but uh, he seems to be in, in good spirits and, uh, you know, I'm sure he'll be ready for it. That's why we've got you for this early morning interview to get you ready for that 10 a.m. start for. Uh, no, for I ATP appreciate Cup. it. I appreciate it. We, maybe we should have gone and done it maybe a couple hours even earlier. I'll be waking up <laughs> much earlier than this. No, for us, it makes no difference because it's early evening, right? But uh, yeah. next time we'll keep that in mind. Um, for those who aren't familiar, the ATP Cup singles uh, matches follow a country's uh, ranking. So number one player against number one player from each country. Same with the number two players. For Canada right now, that means that Dennis gets the number one slot, although you guys are just separated in the ATP rankings by, by just a few spots in the top 15. How does it feel to be the number two? Because to us, the two of you are so interchangeable. Uh, d- does it make a difference in, in how you feel going in? And, and is part of you wishing you had a crack at Novak and and Zverev, for example, early in the season? Yeah, for sure. Um, you know, you go out there and just like any tournament, it's a draw that comes up. Who you play is who you got to deal with and who you got to deal with one at a time. But those uh, matches with the top guys are uh, what I crave most at this time. I think a lot of the time I find myself, uh, especially since I've been healthy, playing well, but there's been a bunch of years now due to health that I miss those opportunities to be playing the top guys in the important moments. And there's no way to um, synthesize that kind of preparation. You have to step up and you have to be put in those preparation in those situations over and over again to be dealing with them. And so they sort of become uh, a natural affair in that sense that you're ready for, you don't, think too much about and you sort of go and you approach them just like you would and I think having those kind of situations four to eight times a year is incredibly important if you want to make the breakthrough so definitely won't miss that aspect of it but you know I think uh, there is really no better way to prepare you know we have at least two matches and hopefully we have four to play and uh, I think it'll be also good to be coming out on court twice uh, you know, back-to-back for Dennis, for the singles and doubles. For me, I'll have one match in between, but getting that time on court will, especially at this time of year, at beginning and leading right into a Grand Slam, be incredibly important. Just uh, one more question for you before we get to a little rapid fire and, and fan questions. Um, you know, you, you say you want those big time matches and I, I'm just looking ahead, of course, to our first Grand Slam of the season, the Australian Open uh, set to begin February 8th. And for you, it's probably been one of your most consistent majors. You've made the quarterfinals or better there five times. Um, why do you think you've had such success um, in Australia? 
I think for me, the most important thing is uh, you come here without sort of the wear and tear and travel of tournament after tournament after tournament. You know, when you're going to tournaments, you sort of put the body secondhand and you really just sort of suck it up and say, okay, am I healthy enough to play? And then you sort of just keep going through that cycle and uh, you keep uh, maybe prioritizing the results of matches and just being ready as best as possible for tournaments over other parts of your preparation that are important. Whereas before Australia, it's the time where you don't have any time constraint, any time pressure of being ready for an event, or at least the pressure seems a lot further away and you're able to prepare properly. You're able to consider each uh, aspect from your fitness to your tennis, to your physical condition day to day and sort of treat it all equally and take care of what needs to be taken care of to give yourself. And I think that has always allowed me to be in the best preparation possible for the Australian Open. Whereas by the time you get to the summer and uh, other events, there's a lot of things maybe that you're carrying on yourself physically that uh, you just haven't been able to allot the right amount of time and the right amount of respect to deal with and get off your back. And I feel like you're just carrying a lot more with you. Well, here's uh, hoping we see another great run there as it is uh, coming up. Just uh, moving into rapid fire questions for you. Uh, first one, what would you say is your favorite or your go-to pre-match meal? Um, salmon and rice. I feel like, uh, you know, you can get sick of it very quickly. I know that, but it's something that we can find pretty much anywhere and it's uh, it's a safe bet. That won't be a breakfast meal, will it, before ATP Cup matches? Rice will be, which isn't that easy to take down early in the morning, especially 10 a.m. matches. That means I'm eating a bowl of rice with maybe a little slab of butter just to make it a little bit less dry at 8.15 in the morning, 8.30. Good luck with that. Uh, next question is, uh, who's your favorite practice partner? Um. Uh, it's, it's, it's a tough one. I practice a lot with, uh, um, uh, players that play opposite to me. Um, in other words, guys that are maybe a bit more solid, a bit more, uh, focused on the baseline play, just because, um, you know, if you get two big servers, that practice can go by quickly without <laughs> hitting too many balls. So, um, anybody that sort of falls under that. And most of the time I actually end up practicing with guys that are similar to the guy I'm going to be playing early on in tournaments. So it's, it's a pretty free flowing opinion. Do you have a uh, favorite place to visit? Japan. Um, oh, I'm always impressed by the city of Tokyo. I wish I could see much more of it and the food. Obviously sushi is one of my favorite things. Who is your least favorite Canadian player to face in competition? And this can be either because of their game on the court oh or because they're going to chirp you hard after the match, depending on how it goes. Yeah, tennis isn't a very uh, chirpful sport. Let's put <laughs> it that way. I think uh, that stuff gets put aside. Um, I think for me, naturally, just tennis has been the toughest, just because lefties, for me, have always been a, a tougher ordeal. So uh, I'd, I'd put tennis up there. Uh, dream tournament to win. Wimbledon. That was a quick one. 
Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay, our last rapid fire question. You're getting the hang of this rapid fire part here. Is uh, your favorite Milos parody account on Twitter? I actually had a laugh when I saw that you follow all three of these. Uh, you have three to choose from. So is it the serve at Milos underscore serve? Is it in a sleeve at Milos right arm? Or is it uh, Milos's uh, hair account, the at Milos underscore hair? The sleeve. I thought they've, uh, from what I've noticed, obviously I haven't been on for a while, but um, I thought they've gotten the most creative uh, at some points. In some parts, there was pictures just of my arm with no sleeve and uh, they were they were adjusting to the times very well. And, you know, I didn't always give them a lot of material to work with, but they always had something put up. I think because you've been gone for so long in the Twitter, Twitter sphere, um, a couple of them have kind of given up. So maybe they'll get back into it now that they see that you've... Probably, had... I think I got a, I already got a message from the sleeve account. So <laughs> there that's you a go. positive start. Hey, we'll end off with a couple of fan questions from listeners of ours who are big Milos fans. And this is the nice part for me and Ben. We can just kind of wash our hands from these questions because they don't come from us, okay? Um, yeah. The first one is from Kate Little. And she asked, how do you prepare mentally when you don't know what this season will look like? Well, right now we've uh, given, been given some uh, uh, a semblance of what the season's going to look like. We are going to have a lot of similar events. I know that, uh, unfortunately, the Australia was first pushed back, so it affected a lot of the February calendar. We lost Indian Wells. Um, but I think you adjust to it i think we had the first uh, try of adjusting to everything in uh, in august with uh, a lot of different events french open being in september and so forth but i think uh, the second time around it's a little bit easier you sort of know that it's out of your control it's not really dependent on you it's dependent on so many more moving parts Um, the most important thing i find is just to focus on what you can control and not get too bogged down by by things that are clearly uh out of out of your hands and uh one last question from this one is from shauna she asks uh how do you strategize or approach the sport of tennis differently post age 30 now in your career haven't played a match yet so i wouldn't know but (laughs) i i I hope it's not too different to um obviously i've matured and i've changed over the years but obviously like like with other things the thing i focus on first is myself and the things i can control obviously tennis is a very reactionary sport you're not the only one that has the say in the results so does your opponent and they have a lot of say in it as well so you have to obviously be changing but for me with my game it's very important that i make sure i'm doing my things well first because that's going to give me the best chance and hopefully i can impose myself more on them than they than my opponent can on me well said milos we want to both uh, thank you so much for joining us uh, early this morning for you and uh you know talking to you at the age of 30 was just as enjoyable as at 29 so you haven't uh, lost a step in terms of your uh, wonderful thoughtful answers we appreciate thank you that. anyways i was gonna blame it on the 9 a.m. if I did. (laughs) And uh, I have to say, Ben and I have a little side discussion going on this year about what's going to happen first in the 2021 tennis season. Uh, You getting a haircut or you cracking the top 10? So uh, we're interested to see what what happens there. Well, yeah, hopefully, hopefully the second of the two. (laughs) Okay, all the best, Milos. Thank you, guys. I appreciate it. 
There you have it, our conversation with uh, Canadian Milos Raonic, and uh, kudos to him for being quite generous with his time every time he uh, speaks with us. Not that it's been that many occasions, but a couple, and he always shares uh, such great insights uh, into what's what's happening in terms of his season, obviously in this case just getting started and uh, clearly raring to go. He goes overtime with us, right? Like I think we've always, always. got this sort of expectation with most professional tennis players like that they're on this super crazy time schedule which you know they are they got pretty regimented daily plan for Milo she had a little bit more press coming up after us he mentioned to us uh, off air but uh, you always kind of figure uh, maybe about 20 minutes would be like an ideal time with one of these mm-hmm. top players and every time yeah we've had Milo she's always like nah, I can go longer than that which again it's kind of rare for for a player to say you know what actually guys take longer if you need to I'm up for it so uh, I certainly appreciate that. And, and as you mentioned, we haven't talked to him perhaps as much as some of the other Canadian players, but I feel like uh, we're getting to know him pretty well. And uh, it's also interesting how when you talk to a player, it's a little bit different than what you might have previously imagined them to be like. Mm-hmm. And I'd like to think we're kind of casual in the approach that we have with our players and our guests and, and with Milos. And uh, yeah, he's a little bit more chill than, uh, than I probably would have expected before we'd ever chatted with him. Yeah, 100%. Very, very laid back uh, personality. But at the same time, he's he's so businesslike in his approach, I think, to the sport of tennis, which is which is always great. And uh, in terms of what's in store for, for Raonic coming forward, of course, the ATP Cup and the Australian Open. And uh, I like that he highlighted kind of why he plays so well at the front end of the season, um, mentioning his great Australian Open results five times quarterfinals or better. Uh, semifinal is in there. And that is health. And that kind of just goes back to what you've always said, Mike, about Milos Ranich, that when he is healthy, uh, he's a dominant top 10 player. And we conceivably don't always see him healthy towards the latter stages of the season, even if he is just kind of willing himself to compete. He's kind of still banged up. Not everything is 100 percent and clicking. That's why I love uh that's why, I, in, a, in a way, I view him as, as the number one of this singles duo. And, that, and that's not a slight to Denis Shapovalov. That's just a, a sustained consistency that we have seen from Milos Raonic when he is healthy on the tennis court. Yeah, for sure. And, and how funny it is that even a year ago, he couldn't really even qualify for the ATP Cup in a sense because he would have been the third guy in and probably not getting any playing time, certainly not in singles last year behind Dennis and Felix, just the way that his ranking had fallen because of injury issues. So to see him back in there, but in the two slot, as we talked to him about in the interview, which, which is still kind of bizarre to be behind Dennis uh, in, in this sense, uh, totally earned by Dennis, by the way. Uh, but I think that's what gives Canada um, the best, you know, or perhaps second best behind Russia, as you and I were just talking about a couple of minutes before we started here, uh, best one, two punch in the, ATP Cup, having those two guys in the top 15. Um, Dennis certainly on the cusp of, you know, top 10 presence, I think. And Milos able to get back there if, if healthy. I also believe that to be true. Um, and so having him as the number two, you know, you don't want to say that he's going to clean up in those matches because he did have trouble on clay against uh, Livic back in the fall uh, from Serbia. And uh, he has lost once before to uh, Jan Leonard uh, Struff from Germany. Um, but I still got to say against both those guys on hard courts early in the season and in Australia, overwhelming favorite for both of those matches. 
Yeah, definitely. And I, I'm sure Lajevic and, and Stuart are both aware they'll be, probably be feeling more of the pressure in a, such a tough matchup against Milos Raonic. I'm sure they would prefer a different kind of matchup. As you mentioned, yeah, I think that's an unbelievable one-two combo. Probably if you're breaking down the combined rankings, it's definitely one of the best. And uh, as you said, I, I view Milos Raonic as, as better than his ranking. Uh, Russia, I think, is such a dangerous team. The only team where we have two players who were competing at the ATP finals last year, Andre Rublev and of course, Daniel Medvedev won it. So that is a very, very lethal combination. My only question maybe with uh, that team is their ability on a doubles court, um, which might be uh, a bit unfamiliar and really some unfamiliarity, I think uh, with Milos Raonic in doubles, because I feel like it's been a very long time since we've seen him compete in doubles. He hasn't played much, that's for sure. I believe he got three tournaments worth of doubles in in 2020. And in two of those tournaments, he played with Felix Auger-Aliassim. They went one and one in both of those events. Um, but I was just scrolling through 2019, 2018. And yeah, Milos hasn't played a ton of doubles. Uh, I believe he's only played with Dennis May- one, maybe two times before, um, I want to say in, in Davis, Davis Cup. But Milos obviously, uh, you know, was relied on in singles play generally back then with Daniel Nestor and Vashik being the reliable doubles tandem for Canada most of the time. So hasn't played a ton of doubles. And yet with his skill set, the big serve clearly going to be a a huge factor, uh, even in doubles. And he loves coming to the net. So he is comfortable already playing up there. Um, And so despite the fact that he hasn't played too much doubles, uh, definitely less than some of the other players that are in this uh, event. Uh, I, I think him and Chapo, even without a huge familiarity between the two of them on the court, uh, I think they bring some interesting intangibles that that I, do, I wouldn't rule them out of doubles, that's for sure. Yeah, yeah, that's uh, in, intangibles is a good way to describe it, I think. It was nice uh, on this occasion with Milos to have some fan engagement as well. Enjoyed asking a couple of your questions and doing a little rapid fire. I hadn't considered this and it kind of uh, came up as, as well because the ATP Cup schedule is going to have these morning matches. He spoke with us in the morning as well, and 10 a.m. Uh, schedule matches is quite rare for these tournaments, but that that's the way the ATP Cup is going to go, and I'm trying to picture myself if I were playing a morning match and gobbling down rice beforehand. It's just like, I enjoy <laughs> rice, but I can't picture myself eating it in the morning. But uh, well, well, is- what, what would you eat before a morning tennis match then? Me typically would probably be eggs, honestly, eggs and like maybe eggs and toast because yeah. uh, you'd probably want a carbohydrate uh, in there as well. But uh, maybe I should take that tip from Ranich and uh, have, have a bowl of rice on the side, perhaps. I, I have no pregame tennis meal because I don't ever have enough time to play tennis anymore, at least for the past, gosh, decade or more. Um, but when I play hockey in the mornings, it doesn't matter what I eat. I play terrible. I'm not a morning athlete. I'm barely an afternoon or evening athlete, by the way, but I'm definitely not a morning <laughs> athlete. But but it will be interesting for them to get up so early and know that they've got to, you know, fuel up for not just a singles match, but they're going to have a doubles match later in the day as well. It's not yeah. like you're going to get a big lunch, you know, in there either. So it's uh, definitely going to be tricky. Maybe just a lot of snacking in between, I guess. I don't know. Some. Yeah, well, and I'm just thinking uh, how curious the timeline it is because normally, and you'll see this if you're ever on the grounds of Rogers Cup, uh, players who are playing that day, they will get their work in on a pra- practice court as well for an hour to fine-tune things. So how are you structuring your practices if you have a 10 a.m. match? Are you getting out there for a practice at like 7, 7.30? Is that too much? Then you don't want to gas yourself as well? Or do you save the practice, do it the night before? I, 
I have some questions on this that uh, are, are a bit unclear, but uh, I, I trust that they'll be ready to go for a morning match. Yeah, let's let's hope so. And it is just really the first tournament of the year for these guys. So, you know, not too much stock in it. They don't want to, I mean, they're going to compete hard, but at the same point, you don't want to push it too hard, you know, given the fact that your body hasn't, you know, played in a while. Um, and uh, anyways, we'll, we'll see what, what happens this week, but uh, should be good. The times of the matches, as we've mentioned before, are very agreeable to those who are in Canada with a, a 6 p.m. Eastern start at 10 a.m. local time in Melbourne. So that's kind of nice. Uh, we're hopeful to be able to speak with some of the guys um, during the week and, and hoping to bring you some of that audio as well. Uh, if the if the time works out, if it doesn't go too late or early into the morning for us here. And um, yeah, I, I think, you know, in terms of countries that you give a pretty good crack at, at this, I mean, we're up against two tough ones right off the bat with Serbia and uh, and Germany as well. But I, I think if we can somehow make it through this, it, it would bode well for, it would mean that things are working obviously very well. And and that I think would bode well for semifinals and, and beyond for uh, for these guys. Yeah, it would no doubt uh, open up a lot if you get through this uh, Group A, Group of Death, uh, so, somewhat uh, so. And uh, I should note, I mean, Novak Djokovic, uh, not only is he going to be the consensus Australian Open favorite, a spot where he's won eight times, but he plays great tennis in the lead-up events ahead of Australia. He he loves the action ahead of ahead of this. And I'm just looking back to last year, he went 6-0 and at the ATP Cup. And that's a formidable record considering the quality of the opponent you're facing. I think he would have got, had to go through at least three or four top 10 players to manage a six and oh. So Serbia is going to be the team to beat in group a just for the fact of Novak alone. Uh, but if you're looking at dark horse candidate countries, Canada is at, at the top of my list. Yeah. And, and Dennis, I mean, well, we think that Milos is, is probably the, the sure thing for his two matches. Uh, and I like Chapo matching up against Zverev who he's beaten in his last two consecutive matches including a 6-2 6-2 win at the ATP Cup a year ago it may come down to Chapo against Djokovic and and what Dennis can produce there I mean he's 0-5 in his career against the world number one but last year was close he went down 4-6 closest encounter he's ever had against Djokovic and when you think about it like Novak's 12 years older than Denis Shapovalov and I don't know it doesn't quite seem like that until I see it on paper but that's a heck of a lot more uh, experience and the fact that Novak is arguably the greatest, if not one of the uh, two or three greatest players of all time. So um, it, it's a big ask for anyone, but Chapo is getting closer, you have to think. And uh, who knows, maybe first match of the year kind of thing is the best time to uh, go in and, and face him. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it nearly worked out last year. Um, so it, it's certainly another opportunity. And I, I feel like when you're one of these other up and coming superstars, you're, you're taking something away from every loss against one of the big three and you're getting closer and closer each time. Of course, I think the route for Dennis was a little bit different because his coming out party was beating Nadal, uh, you know, almost, almost four years ago now, about three and a half years ago now. And we should note he's, he's such a better player uh, since that moment took place. So uh, he's not going to be afraid of the stage. I can tell you that. Yeah, for sure. And so uh, looking forward to what Canada can produce and, uh, Outside of the ATP Cup, we got a few more Canadians that that are in action uh, this first week of official play. Uh, Felix Ogialiassim is playing the Murray River Open as the third seed. He's got a first round bye, and uh, and also Vasek Pospisil is playing not in that event, but in the Great Ocean Road Open. Uh, I got to keep checking these names because yeah. obviously it's the first time we've ever heard of them. Uh, and he's the 15th seed and gets Tiago Montero. 
to start in the opening round uh, there. So good to see those two guys, and especially Vashik after having 14 days in a hotel room. Uh, I'm expecting to see lots of smiles from him just because he's, he's outdoors again. I, I have to say I loved his attitude uh, through this entire 14-day quarantine and kind of keeping us in tune to his training inside the hotel room. I feel like he had uh, the best attitude uh, you could possibly take. He wasn't being negative. He was kind of joking with the fact that obviously this is frustrating. It is really annoying to be cooped up in a hotel for 14 consecutive days, um, but he, he took the the right approach, kind of counting down the days, day five, and showing people his different food orders, getting nutrition, working on the footwork, uh, hitting balls against the sofa, all that all that sort of thing. And uh, he should be nice and fresh and, and ready to play as well. Um, an, an interesting name that I just want to bring up, who's who's also playing at the Great Open, uh, Great Ocean Road Open. Pardon me, uh, a name we haven't seen in ages is Nick Kyrgios. Will be back in action. That's that's curious uh, and exciting, I think, for tennis fans to see, no matter how you feel about him. And Kyrgios in his pre-tournament press the other day, a couple of days ago, said something to the effect when asked by a reporter about his draw, said something like, oh, I didn't even know the draw was was out there. I have no idea who I'm <laughs> playing against. And, you know, so typical Kyrgios. Change much. Right. So, yeah, more of more of that same, which which works for him and yet also sometimes doesn't work for him. So. We'll see. You know, with Kyrgios, he could come out and flame out in the first round or he could win the whole thing. He's quite capable of either of those results. Yeah. And, uh, you know, I was seeing a tweet earlier today from, I forget who, uh, but it was about uh, best male player to never win a Grand Slam. And, you know, you had the Marcelo Rios name thrown out there and and David Ferrer. And I think you commented also on on that, yeah, that I, tweet. I, I said Ferrer and then I mentioned uh, Elena Dementieva, I think was uh, one of those terrific champions who came close a couple of times and didn't win it. She was my pick, at least on the women's side. But in terms of the men, what I'm saying is like, I immediately kind of thought of Kyrgios, even though he's still like mid-career and, and, you know, we're not talking about him in the past tense, but just the fact that he's had such a great record against the three best players of all time and Djokovic, right. Nadal and Federer. I mean, this guy needs to win a slam at some point. Otherwise it'll be just such a colossal waste of talent. I'd put him right up there with Marcelo Rios as, as a great talented player that should have won a slam yet somehow didn't. Yeah. Yeah. And that, that runs completely counter to a David Ferrer example who put all of his ounces of energy into playing the best tennis he could be uh, improving kind of incrementally throughout his career and getting close and kind of just being shut out by the big three. I think he, he made one French open final, of course. Uh, but yeah, that's kind of a different scenario. You would love to see Kyrgios win a grand slam at the same time. He hasn't been close really. He hasn't been beyond a quarterfinal, uh, which happened a long time ago. I should correct myself. He's playing actually at the Murray river open a couple other good names there. Stan Favrenka will see back in action and uh, Grigor Dimitrov as well so that will be uh, fun to see you are listening to matchpoint canada the official podcast of tennis canada you can find us on instagram at matchpoint canada and find us on twitter at matchpoint can we should shift over to the uh, women's side the wta um, some new tournaments as well this week and excited to announce you will be the number one seed at the grampians trophy 500 event Bianca Andrescu is back officially as of uh, mid this week when that tournament gets going it's like a 16 month break hiatus I shouldn't say break because it wasn't a break but since her last professional tennis match which is such a long time Mm -hmm. and so eager to watch her back on the court to see you know what is different what is the same 
how easily does it come back to her? Not that we're, I really don't know what to say in terms of expectations at this point, especially after just when she was probably like hidden her training stride. And, and as Sylvain Bruno, you know, told us before Christmas, you know, starting to play practice sets and things like that and get more into match play scenarios. And then boom, she's locked down for 14 days because of being on one of those flights. So, you know, how frustrating that would be to totally derail the, the preparations that she had been so carefully building upon since last summer's uh, little injury setback. Um, so just, yeah, super excited to, to watch her play. And um, while I don't get nearly enough time to watch as much live tennis as I'd like to these days, uh, her matches back in this tournament are going to be my priority number one um, to see our great Grand Slam champion back in action. Yeah, and uh, you know, the last time we spoke about Bianca, I think we we had some concerns that she hadn't officially signed up her name into a lead-up event uh, ahead of the Australian Open, and I thought, well, maybe this is a difficult scenario to enter into. As you said, 16 months off and your first match coming back would be a first-round match at the Australian Open would have felt like a lot of pressure. So I, I think her ent entering this 500 event um, she should be a little more relaxed and, and at ease and, and get some match play. Even, you know, we, we don't have the expert placing expectations is hard. I don't think we have to place an expectation of her winning this tournament, but at least getting a couple matches, maybe two or three, uh, at least under her belt would be really helpful. And, you know, she went, she went through and survived that 14 day quarantine. Uh, a bunch of the other players in this draw, we're going through that very same thing. And it's only a 28 player draw. It's a smaller field. They shifted the tournament back to Wednesday. So kudos to tennis Australia and Craig Tilly making that change, giving a couple extra practice days for uh, these players to get acclimated to the conditions in Australia and be ready for this one. Um, but, you know, it, I think it's helpful that she is in the same boat. She's not entering a field of a bunch of other players who've been consistently playing, you know, tournament after tournament outside training way more than, than she has. Uh, so I, I think she'll, I think she'll be fine to be honest. Yeah. They could have called it the quarantine cup, I guess, if it's fair to make a joke about that. But um, yeah. I, I think I saw Layla Annie Fernandez's name also in that uh, tournament list. And mm -hmm. um, you know, unfortunately for us, as we're recording this, the draw is probably going to come out within hours of us, uh, you know, putting the, uh, the, the final stamp on this podcast. But uh, my, my one hope is that we don't see Bianca and Layla Annie like line up to each other in the first or second round. You know, that would be my, you know, worst fear of, of having to see those two Canadian. I want them in opposite ends of the draw, regardless of how far they, they go. Um, yeah. But uh, yeah, just for Bianca, like you said, just have a tournament in there before the Australian open where even at the Australian open expectations will be low. And, and, and I think just getting a couple of matches under her belt and belt and, and acclimatizing and being healthy, um, come the end of her run, however long it goes, is is a step back in the right direction for for Bianca. Yeah, and I uh, should mention actually the top eight. This is a really quality field. Just uh, taking a peek now at your seeds, uh, Belinda Bencic, who of course we uh, spoke to in the fall as well. She'll be seated second. Azarenka is playing there. We have Elena Rybakina, Maria Sakari, Annette Contevate, Jennifer Brady, the American, and Angelique Kerber. So uh, a, a list field. of quality players. Very, very good field. Um, so it's not a soft WTA 500. I think the perfect tournament to, to get you ready uh, for Grand Slam action. So um, looking forward to that one. I, I just wanted to mention we have a couple other tournaments on the go right now, including the Yara Valley Classic and uh, Rebecca Marino. We were so thrilled, of course, her ability to qualify for the Australian Open is obviously unbelievable. Um, she did go out in the first round of this Yarra Valley Classic to Jasmine Polini, uh, 7-6-6-3. Uh, but just the fact 
for me that, that she's there in Australia right now and is having the opportunity to compete in the first round of a major in uh, just over a week's time is, is unbelievable, I think. She's been gone even longer than Bianca, if you can, uh, if you yeah. can believe that. Right. Uh, and someone who, as you know, she mentioned to us recently, hey, what's, uh, what's a year and a half off when you've done five off before? So, um, mm-hmm. yeah, I think everything's just uh, positive for her at this stage of the game. And, um, you know, next week's podcast, check back with us, but we'll be obviously reviewing how the Canadians fared at the beginning of the season, how Bianca looked, and uh, hopefully we'll get a few sound bites and uh, opportunities to chat with all those players as well. Yeah, yeah, looking forward to, to all the access virtually. Um, that's one positive of COVID that uh, you have to be a little bit pleased about uh, for us as journalists. Uh, we thank Milos Raonic for being our guest and thank all our listeners. Uh, this is Matchpoint Canada. We will talk to you again next time.